Hello, my name is Anne Anderson. I'm Vice President for Research at the Royal Society of Edinburgh. And here is our first podcast discussing the future of tertiary education. Today's topic will explore widening participation and in particular, the role of solidarity in the education sector, the benefits of fostering a sense of community and how we can provide inclusive systems that support all students, whatever their backgrounds. I'm joined today by Dr. Neil Spears, Widening Participation Manager at the University of Edinburgh. Neil's background involves working as a manager, practitioner and researcher in a number of areas concerning widening participation, access and related policy. He has led a number of community-based projects as well as teaching and researching centred around areas of interest including the transition from school primary to secondary, undergraduate student transitions, the equity of the student experience, the working class mature student, student parents, the hidden curriculum and classism on campus. Widening participation has been a key policy for quite a while at all levels of education. However, we know more needs to be done. From your experience, what are the challenges and opportunities you've noticed in your role? Thanks, Anne. I'd say that I'd probably want to answer that uh, question with a story, if I could. It's a story about a young woman from a working class background here in Edinburgh. It's a true story, and I, f- I hope it can start to address the opportunities and the challenges. In primary school, when she was nine years old, a teacher every day would ask her to buy two or three items on her free school meal ticket. And this happened for a year and a half, essentially, I felt like ruling to her. And it was only later on, after a year and a half, that she finally got the courage to tell her mum about it. And eventually, her mum went to the school and made them aware, of course, to start with, the mum wasn't believed. Uh, the teachers were believed that this wasn't happening. Um, long story short, eventually collaboration was drawn together and it was found out that this was indeed the case and this was what was happening to this young girl at school with her free school meal ticket. Also in high in primary school, the class when she was eight years old went on a school trip and she couldn't afford to go. She was the only one in class that couldn't afford to go. And the school were doing a project to prepare the class for going. And they told her that, well, if you want to, you can take part. You're not going, but if you want to, you can, or you can just go and sit in the next door classroom and do something else. And immediately again, the young girl, she was losing the sense of connection with her teachers, with her classmates. Again, at parents night in primary school, um, very, 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 very little was ever said to her mum. Looking back, she always felt that it was because the, the very fact they received free school meals and they received a clothing grant and so forth and that everybody knew that. And one time she told me that she heard her mum tell her the story how she, at parents' night, could hear from inside another classroom two teachers talking about that by the stage people get to primary two, they know exactly what's going to happen with the young people by the time they get to that age group. Everything that was expected to happen the mother could see was based on those kind of social class orientated assumptions and and stereotypes. And in fact, the only person in the primary school who really talked to her mum was the janitor. And he lived two streets away from where she lived. They knew each other. And then when they went to high school, she went to high school and every single day she stood up in line to receive her free school meal, 
she felt humiliated over and over as her friends and the teachers walked past her. And she always would sense an element of the way that they looked at her as if there was a judgment being made upon who she was. Again, at parents' night one time, her mum had to take two buses to get to the school parents' night. And on one occasion, they were running late. So she arrived late for her first appointment. And what happened? The mother was treated very much like a pupil, told, I have no time for you now. You're too late. You're going to have to move on to the next appointment. Her mum would plead, I really want to hear how my daughter is doing. I'm so interested. I'm sorry. I just, I, I couldn't get here in time because of the buses. As she looked back, again, she always felt this was not how other parents were treated, but she, her mother was. And then in fifth year in high school, she was in class with a, with a teacher, Mrs. O'Hara. And Mrs. O'Hara was different. She took interest in her. And she would stay on after school to provide further tuition for the young woman, young girl. And she started to feel something connected. And then one time, in uh, it was the fifth year prize giving, and her mum came along, and because she was winning a, a, a prize for the greatest effort showed by anybody in the entire year. And Mrs. O'Hara went straight to her mother in the hall and spoke with her and laughed with her and congratulated her on a wonderful daughter that she had. Now, I suppose in addition to all of that, there was school uniform that was, even with the clothing brand, was so expensive. And very often, on official school moments, she would look and be dressed a bit differently from everybody else. But if we think of that schooling experience, no wonder Pierre Bourdieu writes... Um, uh, when, when he wrote back in 1989, he said that agents shape their aspirations according to concrete indices of the accessible and the inaccessible of what is and is not for us. Is it any wonder that the young girl, and indeed her mother, would wonder, would question, is this whole journey in education for us? Have we ever, apart from perhaps Mrs. O'Hara, have we ever felt Part of this included that we were legitimised in this space. I suppose, I think it was T.S. Eliot that wrote, um, the function of schooling is to preserve the class and select the elite. And you might think, well, is that just it then? Well, there is space. We can clearly see the challenges within that story, but we can also see the space for opportunity. The space where education isn't a site for reproduction, but actually of transformation. And I think, and we'll, we'll come on and talk a little bit later about hope and a pedagogy of hope, which ties in right with that. Neil, that was absolutely fascinating and really moving because it takes all of those policy initiatives and makes them personal and human, which, of course, is how we all relate to one another, whether we relate well or whether we relate, as in your story, less well. Can I ask about the other concept that you've talked about and written about, which is this notion of solidarity and what it looks like in your experience now and what it should look like in the future? Regardless of the campus that you're on, from the north of Scotland to the south of England across the entire country, campus life can be cold and distant. It really can. 
it isn't all sunshine like the the holiday brochure prospectuses might try to per persuade us in a, in, a, in a marketing sense. It, it isn't always like that. And coldness and distance can be, I suppose, can be powered, can be energized, because we're all taught essentially to glorify the entrepreneurial individualism that we see, not just on campus, but everywhere. We are told that we celebrate competition and excellence, being world-leading, being better than anybody else, being at the top of the pile, that's the legitimate place to be. You know, education is, you know, it hasn't become, it is a form of, you know, commodified manufacturing process when it's at its worst. You know, I think it's Henry Giroux that says that it essentially produces cheerful robots. That's what we're producing. And we all then go on to be self-sufficient, rational, economic individuals. That's who we go on to be. I think Jacques Attali wrote, um, 2004, I think he wrote, no one, or almost no one, believes any longer that changing lives of others has importance for him or her. Now, I would reject that way of living. And I would propose, what if campus life was warm? What if it was caring? What if we legitimised a pedagogical approach that valued caring, being collaborative and compassionate? What if collective labour was valued? And what if the norm of anxiety-inducing insecurity that we can face in this modern world, what if that was not the norm? You know, what have we all realised? I think Peter Roberts from New Zealand once wrote this when talking about Paulo Freire, when he said, you know, what do we realise that we all live with and for and through each other? We are connect us no matter what we're maybe told or persuaded to believe to the country we are truly connected and it is in that connection i really genuinely believe that we can start to value the quiet often unnoticed gentle forms of solidarity and to start to legitimize these these are happening but we need to talk about them we need to bring them to the headlines we need to legitimize them so we can do more of it but that is solidarity that I genuinely believe in and I practice and I know many of my colleagues practice and I would love for others to try it because it's quite beautiful, quite beautiful. That sounds uh, so warm and moving and presumably is a particularly important resource for those young people from diverse backgrounds who don't know how to navigate these rather ill-defined spaces, people coming from more socioeconomically deprived backgrounds or from college articulation to university where how being a successful university person works is not necessarily made explicit, but there are lots of implicit tacit forms of knowledge in there. And I suppose your concept of solidarity is about helping people understand and realise that for themselves. Very much so. Bordeaux talks about the rules of the game. And those rules of the game are very heavily guarded because there's power associated with them. But what we need to do is open the door and express those rules. And once we know the rules of the game, we can all just do what we're here to do. All our students are there to learn about the thing they love and along the way to make friends and connections. And there's a great potential that we just open up the rule book, as it were. Everybody, everybody will then be able to do that. That's fascinating stuff. I think it leads on to the next concept that you've talked about, 
which is your observation uh, of classism on campus and how does that manifest itself and more importantly what can be done to mitigate its negative impacts again particularly on those who are coming to tertiary education from more diverse backgrounds than in the past yeah i mean i think diane ray writes beautifully about this she does um, when she says that um class is the um the elephant in the room um not just in higher education but in education per se it's the elephant in the room and i suppose we have to name the world, as Ferrer tells us, we have to name the world. And we have to, so this is what we have to do. We have to name what we're addressing here and what we're, what we're, what we're trying to deal with. And that's the impact the social class has uh, in, in education. And so some might say, well, then I'm not sure that that's, that's you know, I'm, I don't identify in a particular class in that way. I, I'm reminded, Scott says to us, he says that, and I'll paraphrase, we don't always have to identify ourselves in terms of class or think of ourselves constantly in that way. For social class division to exist and to be active it's active right now as we speak and so it is real it is there and i suppose the result of classism is that our, our working class students you know whichever campus it might be i mean it can be any any campus across the country but they can find themselves excluded devalued often humiliated and separated and in that sense as that takes place, it's happening through interpersonal relationships that take that, that are, so it will be student to student. It can happen staff to student. It can happen staff to staff. But also then the, there are the, the, the structures of society that frame and reproduce inequality. And those um, deliver that classism as well. So our working class students experience it through the, the structures of society, but often in, in the interpersonal. And I mean, uh, I mean, the hurt that can be in there is quite horrible. I suppose maybe I can tell you about the most recent example that a student told me about just at the end of last week. And she told me that um, the group work that she was doing, um, the other four students in her group were aware of her background and where she came from, which she was quite rightly very proud of who she was and where she came from. But they were aware that she came from an, a background where she received a bursary. She was the first in her family to go to university. She was the first in her family to stay on at school beyond 16. And that, of course, she arrived at university not talking about this in the slightest, just there to love her subjects and make some friends along the way. But I tend to find that our working class students arrive and then very quickly they're, they're told they're informed by others who they are and how they might not be legitimate to be welcomed on campus. And it's that action that is an, is an awakening that our students go through, which they never expected to have to deal with. So that particular story would be of, of the particular young woman I'm talking about where, um, and she was very aware of the way she was talked to and looked at and excluded as well, as I've mentioned before. And then... One of the group said, I think that you should give the answer to what we've all done on this first question when they were providing feedback. And the individual deliberately gave the wrong answer for her to feedback so that she'd be humiliated in front of class. Now, for her to speak in front of class took quite a lot. She's an extraordinary young woman, an extraordinary student, but that took quite a lot. 
And when that happened, um, I mean, she went home and she was in tears, so she was. She really was. It doesn't have to be like that. It doesn't have to be like that. Thomas Piketty, the economist, reminds us that inequality is not a law of nature. It is always a political or ideological choice. So who's making this choice that this is how we're going to live? I would reject that way of living. And I would want to live in a warm, collaborative way of solidarity together. That's how we can live, and we can achieve so much more in that way. But the, the classism that we see is Diane Ray right? She says that the majority of working class students, you know, are often trapped in university life as onlookers. But by the time you get to graduation, if I can paraphrase her, she says that working class students are often brooded by the experience. It's taken so much out of them, which it shouldn't, um, but, but it does. And so that's um, some of the examples of the classism you can see. Now, of course, the story at the very beginning that we looked at, and you know, in primary and secondary school, there's elements of it there as well. So it's everywhere. It's in primary school, secondary schools, tertiary education. Um, it's in society. It's also presumably more of a structural challenge as students are under more economic pressure. Students from more working class backgrounds are more likely to have higher levels of need to work outside their studies, they're more likely perhaps to have caring responsibilities, all of which perhaps reduces as well as the, the, the welcome they receive or do not receive their opportunity to participate fully in campus life. And presumably there are challenges for institutions to make those richer non-academic experiences genuinely accessible for all students rather than only those students who are on campus a 24-7 and do not have these outside a pressures or responsibilities and I'm not sure institutions have fully grappled with those almost structural challenges in addition to the uh, the interpersonal challenges that you've talked about. Absolutely and, and it's that notion of the equity of student experience and when the graduate labour market is not just as it were just looking for the degree and the challenges, of course, that are involved with all of us to take that off, potentially. But then there's that notion, as you quite rightly identify, it's the extra and co-curricular. Uh, that's related to employability. A number of the community projects I have are uh, elements of that associated with the students that work with us on it to make sure they can address these, these notions of understanding their development, understanding their graduate attributes, and then be able to confidently talk about that beyond the subject specifics that they're, they're gathering in, in our lecture halls and laboratories and seminar rooms. And so, yes... That equity of experience, it's not just what happens in the classroom. It's, it's across all campuses, you rightly point out. Yeah, absolutely. On the more positive side of things, Neil, you've, you've written about the notion of the pedagogy of hope. This sounds a fascinating concept that I think will be new to many people. Could you unpack that a little bit more for us? I mean, yes, absolutely. It comes from um, uh, Paulo Freire. Um, and Freire's work on the, the pedagogy of hope I, I find immensely important to what I do. And perhaps Ferris says that he says, if I can quote him, he says, um, the most fundamental lesson is the one of non-conformity before injustice. The teaching that we are capable of deciding, of changing the world, of improving it. And to genuinely believe that that is possible. And so the hope that exists in that, it's not just a feeling. It also is deeply rooted with 
commitment to stand with community and to know that together we live through and with and for each other. And within that solidarity, we can express that hope and, and true absolute belief that goes beyond that feeling, but that deeply rooted commitment to action that that hope demands. That, that dignity that we all, we all should have in our lives, I suppose, though, and there's the, there's the rejection, though, of the, the culture of indifference that sweeps the world, not just on our campuses across the world, this culture of indifference where we look the other way or we're looking only for our own interests. That's the, kind of, the glorification of the entrepreneurial individualism. And we have to reject this idea of this culture of indifference. We can be indifferent to those who are next to us, who are across the road from us, or on the other side of the world from us. We, we can, but if we think just on campus, those who are part of our campus life, uh, regardless of the subject of this study, you know, whether they're staff or student, whoever they are. And so that hope, you know, it, it asks us to, to reject this idea where often this um, dehumanizing sense of lack of love in society, where there's a desire to dominate others uh, or to dominate nature or whatever it might be, to, to reject that and to welcome this kind of compassionate caring for others and then deeply rooted commitment to action that is related to that whole. And that's a pedagogical practice, so it is. That's what it is. And so it's something that all well, parts of education can look at. But of course, as, as we all know, pedagogy isn't just what's happening in the classroom. Um, it's, it's, it's those relationships that are taking place outside of the classroom. So in the corridor, you know, on the square, wherever we might be, how do we interact with each other? How do we treat each other? How do we welcome each other? Is, is, each, is each interaction um, coming from that, that, that notion of solidarity and hope and the expectation that there's something great that could happen about us being here together and working together, as opposed to it's a threat, this other person might climb above me or whatever it might be. Some people might listen to this and think, well, that fella is completely naive. He's a fool. Well, maybe, maybe in the current world, people might say, well, the evidence suggests he might be, but if he is a fool, he's a fool who is filled with hope and the love of solidarity and the belief in every one of our students, regardless of who they are. And I won't apologize for that. I would never expect you to. I mean, the, the passion and the enthusiasm you've shown and also how you've unpacked the kind of philosophical underpinnings are fascinating. Could I ask you to share some of the work you've done on a practical level to, in a sense, embody some of these more positive aspects in your own work around supporting students who are coming from what we refer to as sort of widening participation initiatives or backgrounds? Absolutely, Anne. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot to choose from. So I'll maybe only choose one or two, uh, one or two. So it's not a complete story, but um, perhaps the, the first one I might think about is that very early age group working with primary learners. In actual fact, um, we're celebrating 20 years of that project this very year, and we're delighted to do so. And that's a project that works in true collaboration with those feeder primary schools in Wester Hills and Leverton Gilmerton and Craig Royston and some of the feeders as well in Talith Academy. And 
We haven't been in all of those schools for 20 years, but minimum would be a, a, a good 10 in most of them and, and many of them for 20 years. And that is about the initial touching base with learners um, to make them aware of what lies beyond high school. Very often, that's something that individuals don't know about. Um, that's nothing, that's not their fault in the slightest. They don't know about it. They don't know. This goes back to perhaps the, the opening story and Bordeaux reminding us of, of what we think, you know, what, what is for us and what isn't for us. But it's to be able to shake that up and to see that there are many things that lie opportunity-wise for every pupil, regardless of who they are or where they come from, and to be able to open them up to the idea, and this may sound very basic, but this is what we have to do. We take it back to first principles. Good pedagogical practice begins with who is in front of you, not what you think they should know, what they don't know, or what, what, what I know. Or not. No, no. The individuals in front of me, what do they know? What do they understand? And how can we develop from there? And so we tell the story about what university is, who it's for. It's not a one chance. There are many chances. The, the, you know, the, the beautiful idea of lifelong learning, that sometimes, maybe after school, it's not the right thing for you. And that's perfectly okay. Maybe years later, there might be something that you reconsider. We open up the notion of the, 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 the nomenclature, the language, which again is a powerful barrier to people to be able to even talk and discuss about further higher education. So we open up that language. We open up... Um, the pupils to their city, parts of their city that they do not know. Um, and when I'm meeting some of them next week, I'll tell them about the room that we're in right now, Anne. Because this is probably parts of the city as well that they might know, not know about as well. Just as other parts of the city they won't. There'll be, there'll be areas that they're very familiar with, but it's their city. And isn't it wonderful to know your city, that sense of place, and to know, as, as this particular city in Edinburgh has, so many opportunities for all, all people's um, four universities, Edinburgh College, um, so many things to touch base with, and you don't have to leave home or go far if you don't want to. So opening up that idea, normalising what is a very scary and you know, difficult thing to touch base with and to understand and to develop that understand of language, and then to get that sense of place as you've come to the institution and get to know it and normalise that idea and see how what you learn in school is related to what you might do in the future, to the as maybe primary learners might think of the world of work, and how we can show that curriculum is relevant to them, that you know what they're learning about is important, and show how it's relevant to them. That's sometimes one of the great mysteries in school when people say, "Sir, Miss, why am I doing this? When am I ever going to use this?" I'm a great believer in answering the question. I'll show you where you're going to use this, not just to think of things in that literal sense of, "Well, this." exact piece of knowledge might not be what we use but the skills and attributes that are behind that that facilitate that that's where the power is and so it's 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 that massive experiential learning based very much on david Combs' idea of experience experiential learning and we take that forward and that's a, a full year's program with workbooks and experiences in school and on campus and there's a proper set properly set of learning outcomes at the very end of it it's also filled with joy because isn't the best learning when we're smiling and laughing? Well, I mean, I, th I would believe so anyway. Um, that's a really powerful place to be. And so it's riddled with joy. There's challenges, intellectual challenges in what we do. But the pupils always rise to that. It's amazing how we just don't sometimes ask 
are people's what they think about things. I think if we did that a bit more often, we'd be hugely delighted with the, the sophisticated responses that we sometimes get. So there's one example, perhaps. Perhaps if we think about the the other end of the scale, perhaps, and when, when students finally complete their journey and come to university, and another project that we were celebrating 20 years of just last year was our peer support program, which had been going on for 20 years where we have wedding participation students, senior, supporting uh, new first-year students. And that's a really powerful relationship. I talked about the warmth and the collaboration. Those relationships are purely warm and open arms that are involved with that. You might think, well, he's waxing too lyrically here. Not in the slightest. This is exactly it. And June... The, the height of the pandemic, when so many people were at home, for many of our students, it's for the only other person on a regular basis that they spoke to outside of home. The power, the power in knowing that other staff and students care about who you are and, you're, and that you do well and that you're okay, your well-being, there's immense power in that. And that's exactly what happens in this relationship that we set up senior student working with a, um, a new first year student we address the transition because that's a key point as you're where, where we are so we address that transition and we have that relationship that goes throughout the year and then that new student as they develop they become the senior student that feeds the back end so this we have the relationships are feeding into each other it's a community of practice of collective labor and we look after and care for each other generation by generation, and that's exactly what happens. So it's an example of what I've been talking about, perhaps really in action in that way. Now, it, it all may sound very simple, but it's all pedagogical action. And sometimes um, outreach work is delegitimized a little bit by thought of, well, that's outreach work and so forth. But for me, it's important to acknowledge there's a sophistication in that work. There's a pedagogical practice in that work. And that's the that's really when you can you can really make projects sing when you when you acknowledge that and i think those two one in primary and one uh, at undergraduate level might be two examples of which there are many more um to illustrate um some of the work that we do thank you very much and just to end i mean it's been fascinating talking to you and hearing from you neil what do you think in your space the future of tertiary education will bring? Oh my goodness, that's a that's a good one to finish with, Anne, isn't it? That's a good one to finish with. Um, I mean, I would be I'd be a, a great believer in the potential for education to be a site of transformation, of liberation, that kind of idea, as opposed to a site for cultural reproduction. But of course, the answer is um, going back to what Thomas Piketty says about inequality. We, we need to then to collectively decide that we don't want to live in the way that we live right now. That we want to live better for and through each other. And that is what I would hope for. And that's what I'll continue to work for. Absolutely. And hopefully others might join along the way. Um, but that's the key thing. How many of us are actually going to, and if we think about the tertiary Shooters report that the Royal Society has, has, has published, how many will take that time to read, to reflect uh, in a reflexive way and see their role here and see how can they change their practice? How can they change their practice in order to be able to appropriately engage in what the future of our education system could provide for all young people, regardless of who they are or where they come from? 
there's immense power in man. I'd be a great believer in the possibility of that. And so my prediction is I've continued to work for it and I hope as many others as possible will do exactly the same. It's been wonderful to hear your passion for this really important agenda. Thank you so much, Neil. Thank you very much, Anne. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you did, please give us a rating or review. It helps other people to find the podcast. This conversation is part of the Tertiary Education Futures Project in partnership with the Royal Society of Edinburgh and the Young Academy of Scotland. The project aims to stimulate creative thinking about how post-school education might evolve over the next few decades. So please keep talking about the future of tertiary education. You can discover more at rse.org.uk. Until next time, goodbye.